This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 394, a conversation with Paul Jenkins. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 394. It's our conversation with Paul Jenkins, the acclaimed writer and creator of characters such as uh, The Century um, and uh, the current series Replica joins us for the podcast to talk about his career in comics. It's actually a really fun discussion. Uh, we talk for about an hour. We start off talking about his most recent work, which is Replica. Uh, we talk about Origin. We talk about his run on the Hulk. We talk about Spider-Man. We talk about a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we also talk about his, one of his upcoming uh, series as well. So there's a lot of good stuff to be found. I also want to thank uh, listener I um, I don't even know how to pronounce it. So it's INTP. Uh, he's a, a poster from the Marvel Masterworks forum. He submitted a question that we were able to include incorporate into today's episode. Uh, so thank you for submitting that question. Uh, if you want to uh, email us, you can email me at shenanig- comic shenanigans, sorry, comic shenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Our next episode, episode 396, will be a focus on, or sorry, a spotlight on the Suicide Squad film. The week after that will likely be another conversation episode, and then after that, it's on to episode 400. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff coming up um, in the next few months. Uh, we have some more interviews that are going to be scheduled soon, so we're going to start getting, hopefully, picking back up in terms of interviews. I think we have interviews coming up with Ron Mars, uh, another one with Ron Friends. Apparently, I just like people named Ron. Um, so that's a lot of good stuff to look forward to in the next few months as we start breach the 400th episode barrier and move into the 400s. Um, so without further ado, let's get right on into the conversation with Paul Jenkins. There is a little bit of a lag it's at one point. Um, I thought I may have lost him on the call, but then he was able to resume, so uh, you might notice that. And uh, let's ju- jump right in and welcome Paul to the show. Paul, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Now, I find often with these interviews, I, I do some somewhat of a chronological order, and I go from you know your, your earliest uh, memories of comics and kind of move forward. But today, I want to do something a little bit different, because I really want to talk about Replica. Okay. Um, where did the, the original idea for this, this series come from? Um, sometimes that's difficult to answer, because... Writers, creators—it's—it's it's only easy to answer after the fact, you know. Um, sometimes when you're creating something, you don't really know where it's coming from. I would say, in hindsight, it probably comes from the fact that I have a very difficult and complicated series of jobs in my life. You know, I um, I work at a studio, which is kind of a startup company, but we're at a massive building in Atlanta. You know, and there's a lot of um, films being made here now, so we've sort of built this. Uh, this studio called Meta Studios, and uh, you know we're working in the education space. So we, we teach people how to make films and animation and cross media kind of stuff. Um, we also are in the business of making stuff. Um, I have a novel coming out. I have uh, a bunch of comics. I work in video games. I am working potentially on a, a big VR kind of AR project right now. So I've become the guy that sort of does everything, and probably when I created Replica, my thought process was something along the lines of, man, I wish I could clone myself 50 times, <laughs> and uh, that's where the idea came from. Now, was it uh, originally an intent that each issue, the, the numbering would kind of focus, be the same as one of the replicas that you would actually be focusing on? Yeah, that was the intent. I, I actually thought what would be really funny is if we could get through you know, a lot of issues, um, we'd be able to get all the way up to 42, you know, and 27, and, you know, like, have each cover depict the clone that was part of it, because the comic was kind of structured that way. Now, um, are we going to get more, I guess, is the first question, because, I mean, I really enjoyed the five (laughs) issues that we got, it made me want to see more of this world. Is there more replica in our future? Um, the the issue that we've been having, and I won't get into it uh, too much, um, is just that our artist, Andy Clark, had a little bit of a health issue that he's been dealing with, um, just a, an eye, eyesight issue, and so that seemed, at the moment, uh, you know, a fair thing to say is that um, I don't see anybody else drawing that book, you know, Andy's perfect for it, and our creative and 
our creative side to that book is, is a perfect sort of team. So um, I'm going to wait for Andy and hope that everything works out well for him at the moment. Um, and, and I don't really want to do any more with Andy. You know, I love it. I love the book and I think it's about perfect in terms of the way the story works. So I don't want to try and reinvent the wheel and go down the route of a different artist. No matter how many great artists there are out there, I don't think they'll understand the humor in the way that Andy did. How did Andy come to be part of the project? Was he right there from the get-go, or did you already have the kind of the concept and then you were kind of looking for an artist, or how did you guys come together as a team? Yeah, I had, had the concept. I was looking for an artist, and uh, Mike Martz, you know, when he came on board as the editor, um, and he had spent so much time at Marvel in D.C., uh, Mike suggested Andy, and it was obviously perfect from day one. Now, which of the clones so far did you think you had the most fun writing? There's a clone, number 14, who is a binge eater, you know, and <laughs> he's just got problems uh, with that, and uh, I like him a lot, I feel bad for him, you know, he's just the one that's sort of given in to it, he's got a little bit fat and a little bit out of shape, and I, I kind of like that guy, um, I, I don't know, you know, there's some good ones in there, you know, uh, I like number two because he just, he's like long suffering, he's doing his best to just keep it together, and he probably should be in charge, but he's not, Trevor's in charge, so uh, it's difficult to say exactly which one, but um, uh, there is one more too, there's there's actually one that I've written the issue for, and I don't, I don't want to give it away too much, but I, I guess I can sort of talk about him. You know, I had written through issue six and seven, and uh, and then we had to put the project on hold for a while. Um, and number seven is actually a great character. He's gay, and he, Trevor's really adamant. There's no part of him that's gay because these are all aspects of his personality. And number seven <laughs> keeps saying to, "Well, you know, we both know that's not true, don't we?" <laughs> so, so I like seven. He's a good character. Do you have a master list of all of them? Yes, we do, with a picture of every single one of them as well. Oh, really? Oh, wow. What was that like getting the art back on like what each one of them looked like and how distinct they were in their visuals? Yeah, that was that was funny. I mean, you know, sometimes uh, we would realize, okay, we got a logistical problem on our hands. You know, Andy has drawn number twenty-three, but he didn't have any direction, and that would that guy would show up in number two just as sort of a background guy, and so now we'd have to create a backstory for the way that he looked. <laughs> uh, which was funny so it, it wasn't all completely planned to be quite honest um, with the the covers to the series I mean I'm, I'm looking at the cover to number 5 and it's uh, they're all naked and doing the yeah. uh, the shot and again it has number 14 as you mentioned just kind of unabashedly still eating while on the police lineup um, yeah. did the covers did you ever give Andy any direction on the covers or were they completely <laughs> his design no I actually uh, yeah I, I think I actually I designed the covers because uh, I understood what, what was going to be funny you know uh, number two is obviously a naughty poop joke uh, <laughs> and he's sitting on the toilet number three we sort of decided well let's do a threesome uh, the golf thing of number four he said you know you don't actually yell the number four but we figured it was funny anyway <laughs> um, and five naughty monkeys the last one's called five naughty monkeys and uh, so we basically had Number five on the cover, and four of them. Well, actually, five people in the in the in the total in the cover, but one of them is a little robot. Actually, of all of the characters, I think the robot's the one that I find the most fun to write because he's just awful, isn't he? You know, he's, <laughs> he he watches computer porn by looking at pictures of like, uh, you know, like construction gear and stuff. You know, that's just, <laughs> be working. When what's interesting about the book as well is that it's uh, and obviously a very interesting kind of personal drama because you're doing you know a detective story you also have you know a guy dealing with all these different aspects of his own personality and then you also have it set amongst this really kind of high sci-fi kind of backdrop what kind of made you bring all those concepts together because I feel like either like one of those things would have been a you know kind of a story on its own but pulling them all together is this you know crazy kind of high high uh, sci-fi kind of crazy trip uh, yeah it's probably because I'm too ambitious I suppose that's the answer you know yeah uh, I don't know <laughs> I'm too I'm far too ambitious for my own good uh, I like all of those things so why not put them all together and see what happens you know it seemed like you really enjoyed um, uh, writing the uh, the sidekick the, the partner to Trevor oh uh, yeah 
Yeah, he, he's uh, everybody loves him. Where did the where did the impetus for how that character kind of acts and the fact that he doesn't really understand the culture that Trevor's coming from and that weird kind of mishmash? Where did that inspiration come from? Yeah, his his name is Vorgas, and every, everybody loves Vorgas because he's really quite sweet. You know, he's um, utterly stupid. <laughs> Even if he wasn't utterly stupid, he he can't interpret human law. He's really not that smart, so he can get him to do anything for you. But, you know, I, I tend to think that people love him because he's so loyal. Um, Trevor can't stand him, but he, he, he loves him in a way. He's like, he loves him like a little brother, you know. And um, and poor Vorgas, you know, at one point they send him down to surrender just because they need someone to create. So, and he does it, you know. So he's sort of like, he's not that bright, but he's very, very loyal. And he tries, he's trying. He's just completely messing it up every time he tries. <laughs> um I don't know. I don't know. There's no inspiration for him except all the people I've met that are like him. You know. Fair enough. What uh, led you to work with Aftershock Comics? What? How did that that partnership come about? Well, the publisher Joe Pruitt. You know, I've I've known Joe for as long as we both worked in comics. I actually uh, gave him his first job in comics, I believe. So when I was at Tundra Publishing, I was a young guy. I was an editor. And uh, Joe had this pro- project called Kilroy, and I thought it was quite good actually. And so I, I sort of brought it in, and we tried to get it done there and stuff. And Joe went on to have a great career at Caliber, and has won some Eisner's as an editor for his anthologies. And so, you know, when he came back with Aftershock, it seemed like a, a perfect kind of fit, you know, because they're, they're doing things. You know, they've got good creative talent there, and, and they're really trying to do some great things to shake up the industry a little bit. Now, the first trade paperback of Replica, I think it's just come out this month, right? Uh-huh. Now, is there, is there any uh, extra bonus material in there, or just a, a straight reprinting of the uh, series? Yeah, I think there's some rambling from me. They said, like, write a foreword, you got ten minutes, so I wrote one in ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, one question I like to ask my, uh, my guests on the show is, uh, when you are signing something at a comic convention, what do you find is the most typical or most common thing that they ask you to sign? For obvious reasons, I've signed an awful lot of copies of The Origin of Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've signed an awful lot of copies of The Inhumans. Um, but I think actually in individual individual ones, uh, I have signed probably one issue of Spider-Man uh, more than anything else that I wrote. It's an issue uh, where Peter Parker and his Uncle Ben go to a, a a baseball game every year and then on the anniversary of Uncle Ben's death Peter always goes to watch this Mets baseball game what do you what do you think it is about that issue that struck such a chord for people uh, I know how many people have come up and, and and cried literally cried their eyes out or said it reminded them of their uncle or their father or, or someone that they had lost you know um, I, I wrote the issue uh, I went to Wales to see my grandfather, and uh, he was, you know, be, living in the States and having your grandparents die is strange because, you know, you get called over to say goodbye to them even though they're still alive, and you get on the plane, and then at some point like, thereafter they die. And um, so I had just visited with my grandfather, and I couldn't really communicate with him because he was just falling asleep and sort of he was drifting off out of his life. and. While I was busy talking to him, um, uh, I asked him. I couldn't. I couldn't get him interested in the football, you know, the soccer. I couldn't get him interested in anything. And then I asked him, "Remember what about those songs we used to sing when I was a little boy? You used to sing to me all the time, Granddad." And he was really interested in that. And we started singing some songs together. And the crazy thing was, uh, all of the old people in the old people's home started singing the same songs because they had gone through the Blitz. You know, they'd all gone through the war together. And um, so I realized at that moment that that people are connected by rituals and, and things like Thanksgiving or traditions, you know. Um, and I, I got on the plane and I wrote the issue on the plane on the way home and submitted it. And I suppose it's just a very honest story about how we connect. But the, the thing, I've said this before in many interviews, that the thing that's actually quite interesting to me about that issue is... Um, people come up to me and they'll tell me how much it moved them and how meaningful it was 
and then I'll give them the bad news and it always upsets them. I say to them, uh, you do realize that there's not a single picture in that entire issue of him dressed as Spider-Man. <laughs> um, because it's a story about a boy and his uncle and it says Spider-Man on the cover. So, so that's always been a guiding principle of mine in writing. Uh, you know, that people think they want Spider-Man, they think they want Superman, they think they want this. They do to an extent. But, you know, we get bored by just constantly repeating uh, Spider-Man fights. And the worst the worst story in comics is good guy punches bad guy, bad guy falls over, right? That's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so I think that we want people. And so people have always been a bit frustrated that there is absolutely, absolutely no picture of him dressed like Spider-Man in that whole issue. When you, when you were writing the book, I mean, it definitely felt like um, it was... You, you did a lot of you know really character centric stories and kind of done in ones and it kind of felt like not that it was isolated but it felt like you were you were getting back to what mattered uh, as opposed to you know kind of the, the the headier concepts or you know the typical superhero ness of it all was was that a conscious decision? Absolutely. I mean, it's the only way I know how to be right. I, I uh, again, it's something that I have repeated. I, I've not been a big student of history of comics, right? So I couldn't tell you what happened in issue twenty three of Daredevil. And a lot of people that work in comics could, and they know everything about every issue that's ever been printed, and that's their way of doing it. And mine has actually been to avoid reading many comics. You know, I'm better off if I just come in with sort of a unique voice that approaches the characters differently. So when I was given Spider-Man, I know it sounds absurd these days, but at the time, Ralph Macchio, the editor, called me up probably two or three years prior to this maybe about two and he kept saying I'd like you to write Spider-Man and I kept saying I'm not interested Ralph I, I don't I don't know what I'd say with Spider-Man you know I don't know what to think what stories to write and one day uh, I, I was saying to Ralph you know it's such a convoluted backstory there's clones and at the time it was really com- complex you know mm-hmm. um, and so one day I called Ralph up and I said, I think I got it, Ralph. What I need to do in order to write Spider-Man is to write about how complex and impenetrable his life is and, and all the tragedies and, and peel away the layers, right? So we did it in this web spinners arc that was three issues. It was myself and J.G. Jones and then myself and Sean Phillips. And we literally peeled away the, the layers of, of Spider-Man to get him right to the point where he needed to be. Um, and then I started with Mark Buckingham. And Bucky called me up, and the first thing that happened was we talked to each other on the phone, and he said, you never get, guess what? We're in The Sun today, which is the daily newspaper that's just the most atrocious newspaper in, in tabloid in Britain. <laughs> and on the front cover of The Sun that, that time, it said, um, uh, Amer- two Brits t- take over America or something, <laughs> right? And then it was us actually taking over an American superhero. And so we were laughing, and I said, you know what's, what's sad, man, is with all these clone sagas and all that stuff, the, the Spider-Man I remember when I was a little kid was was one that, you know, the way that he beat Dr. Octopus and, and, and um, you know, the Green Goblin was that he, he'd crack a joke at them, and it would drive them crazy, you know, that he would win mentally in some ways. He would, he would, they would never be able to hurt him because he could crack a joke back at them, and he had a little quip. And I said, you know, when was the last time that, that Spider-Man made you laugh, Bucky? And he, he said, like, you know, you're right. Like, why don't we do that a little bit? So we actually had issues. Like, um, there was a whole issue about him fighting a gang of mimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember being on the phone with Bucky, and it's 3 o'clock in the, in the morning my time, 8 o'clock in the morning his time. And we were. Lo- it was one of the, my favorite moments of my life. I'll never forget it, that we... Sound the phone, and we were cracking up so hard that we neither of us could breathe because we thought our ideas were so funny. <laughs> and we and we finished laughing, and I said, "You know, Bucky, this is what we should do." Like everyone says we can't do anything with Spider-Man, right? Why don't we just be honest and do this and have some fun, do some heartfelt stories, uh, tell true stories about people? And so we did that, and we created a very quiet little revolution in Spider-Man. I felt, you know. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, I want to ask, because it was always one of my favorite issues of your run, is the story about LaFrance. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and I'm sure you hear about that all the time, because that's definitely like a very hard-hitting issue. What was yep. it like putting that together that's very different? Well, it, it was actually two issues after the baseball issue I was talking about, right? So at that point, I think we'd hit a stride that we liked. 
you know. And and they, they never told us no. Uh, they always said, yeah, just do whatever you want. We love what you do. And um, so I uh, I felt that when I was talking about Spider-Man and what Spider-Man was, when I was a little boy, I grew up in the West Country. I grew up on a farm. I, I you know, lived in a house that, that very genuinely had no electricity in it. And um, my father had disappeared when I was about five years old. And so I was sort of living in this quite fearful environment. And um, I, my grandmother would send me comics from London. Uh, and they would be in a tube. And so my brother and I would read these comics and it would be like Daredevil, Spider-Man, and then British Daily Comics and, you know, maybe the occasional EC comic reprint, which is great because my grandmother would send us like horror comics, which is awesome, right? <laughs> it was great. And so we, my assumption, because I had only ever been to the city a couple of times, was that Spider-Man was actually British and that he jumped around London. I didn't, know that he didn't you know um i thought he he basically you know flew around london and and, and I, I pictured him as me or as a guy with a british accent right and so that's what the france was about it was about a little african-american kid that thinks he has a secret psychic or he's a secret psychic to a, a superhero called spider-man and that when spider-man takes his mask off it's one of my favorite pages of all you know spider-man takes off his mask and reveals himself to be to be like Alan Iverson the basketball players he's a black guy you know uh, I know a lot of people love that book yeah no it's it's just it's well it's an exceptionally emotional issue because you really feel for LaFrance because he's a victim of circumstance way beyond his control and he idolizes this character and it's yeah it's, it's heartbreaking actually yeah Spider-Man's like his safety you know the world is really hard for him but he has something he can believe in you know you wrote um, one of my uh, favorite issues of your run as well, as uh, which I feel like doesn't often get talked about for some reason. Is a great issue uh, all about how the police see Spider-Man. Yeah, and I yeah. always just really love that issue. Yeah, I think they, you know, the idea being that the police don't have a horrible negative feel of him. They they see him a certain way. They they respect what he's trying to do, but they know that they're duty bound to arrest him if they catch him and all that kind of stuff um, so it was all about like a detective I think he was the one you're talking about where he's trying to actually find out who Spider-Man is and he gets it gets closer and closer and he follows his like patrol patterns and all of that and he finally goes in and he goes into the offices of the Daily Bugle and he's ready to accuse Spider-Man you're like oh man he's got him this time Actually, I, I do like that one, but that's actually not the one I'm, I'm talking about. That's not the one you're talking about? No. no I'm, I'm missing it, yeah. No, there's a, an issue where, yeah, I forget whose perspective it's supposed to be, but it's basically, it's almost like you're going inside the police department and people are asking someone. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, it's slightly different. Yeah, because in, in the one I was talking about, the detective one, he interviews great. a lot of people and they give information, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, I mean, I love that kind of stuff, you know. I think we, I think... What we did on Spider-Man was, like I said, a kind of a quiet revolution because before we came on, I think Marvel were telling me, you know, they felt like it, they weren't sure what to do. It lost its way a little bit. Um, so I feel like, I felt like uh, we did interesting, intriguing, difficult, challenging stories. We did one, there's literally one where Spider-Man says to the Goblin, I'll kill you. You know, he's so angry. There's one where he calls him a bastard. <laughs> there's, there's some stuff that they let us do that they wouldn't let us do now, but they should. You know, mm -hmm. those times, those times from Marvel Knights and just a few years afterwards were the times when Marvel resuscitated its line and, and uh, we were allowed to do things that made sense in terms of story. It wasn't driven by the marketing. It was driven by the story. Oh, it's, you know, since you bring up Marvel Knights, I mean, you were launching one of the you know initial four titles of Marvel Knights. What was the atmosphere at the time when you started writing Inhumans? <clears throat> yeah, um, when Inhumans number one came out, people said that was quite good, and I thought, great, we're getting somewhere. You know, uh, they they quite liked it. And then Inhumans number two came out, and it was like the internet exploded. It was as if people had suddenly found comics all over again and said, this is the greatest issue I've ever read. And, you know, you'd see this thing and I, I kept thinking, what happened there? You know, it was just a comic. 
wasn't wasn't that good. And um, I've had this conversation with Alan Moore. You know, I used to be his editor years ago, and I, I talked to him about that one time. And his his perspective on um, on, on Watchmen is very different from what most people might think. Uh, he knows it was quite a good book, and he knows it was interesting, but it wasn't that good. It was a great book, but you know, Alan, Alan's sort of like, I don't understand what the problem is. Like, I've written plenty of good stuff. Why is everybody all over Watchmen? And I feel the same way about humans. You know, I feel like I've written plenty of good stuff, and something that is some things are personally more meaningful to me than in humans. But that was the one that took off. So okay. You know? Interesting. Now, with when you worked with uh, Jay Lee on that, how did you know, was Jay Lee always part of the process? Again, like, how did he come to be the artist? Because obviously, I mean, obviously your script was very strong, uh, but also his, his visuals really sold it as well. Like, it was an, an intense marriage of both the script and the visuals. Um, Jay asked me, you know, Jay, Jay and I had been wanting to do a Hellblazer, Hellshock crossover, which made no sense to either of us, and we never could think of any ideas to do for it. <laughs> and um, Jay said... You know, why don't we, you know, Joe and Jimmy have got this thing going. I knew Joe and Jimmy from event comics a little bit, and, you know, I'd met them before. And, and uh, so they said they got this thing called Marvel Knights where they come in. And Marvel are in bankruptcy right now, but they're sort of like, look, we've got a couple of canceled titles. You know, we're not going to not gonna do Daredevil anymore, so we're going to have someone else. Kevin Smith will do it. And I'm like, that sounds like a good idea. And um, Jay said, well, what do you want to do? I said, mate, you know me, I, 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 I have no idea what any of the characters are. I know who Spider-Man is. And he said, well, what, I think we should do the Inhumans. I'd love to do them. And I said, yeah, great. Who are they? Well, I'd never heard of them. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, you know, and so they, they, you know, it's been written about a lot. I mean, now they sent me two five-page stories by Jack Kirby. And so I read those two five-page shorts and said, do me a favor. Don't send me anything else. I get it. And I wrote the 12 issues of Inhumans off of that. Now, did you, I can't remember, did you do any other work with the Inhumans afterwards, or was that kind of the, your last stamp on the characters? No, I never did, and uh, Axel Alonso once asked me if I would like to come back and write Inhumans 2, and it's my stupid fault. I'm like, Axel, I don't think that's a good idea, man. Because um, I, I get his point. I think, I think it would have been somewhat seen as being an event of some kind if I came back and did it. Uh, but honestly... Um, the view of Inhumans number one was so positive that I could only do one thing by doing Inhumans two, which would be to make people unhappy that it didn't make them feel like number one felt, no matter what I wrote. You know. Mm. Fair enough. Now, I actually had a question around the same time as when you did the Web Spinners uh, three-issue arc that you talked about. Well, what made you decide to use the chameleon and use him in that way? Because I think that in a lot of ways that was one of the better chameleon stories I've ever read. Thank you. Um, I liked the chameleon because he was the first Spider-Man guy, you know. He was the first villain, wasn't he? Yeah, he no, Amazing Spider-Man number one, the first yeah. actual costume villain. Yeah, and um, I, I had to ask you, by the way, because I wasn't sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I liked the idea that he was a guy who who it seemed to me had quite a lot in common with Peter. And, I, and I, I thought about him and I thought, you know, if you were the chameleon and your thing was that you could be anybody, could you be you? And this is always the way that I've approached things, you know, like what's interesting about him. I, I talked to Marvel and I, I've talked to DC in the past. You could give me any character. I don't care what character it is, especially the rogues galleries and stuff like that. Just tell me I'm right in it, and I bet you I could think of something interesting in that character. There, there are no bad characters. Um, everyone's interesting. And there's a few Spider-Man stories I, I wish I'd sort of gotten to. We had, we had one that I was very fond of that would have been a comedy um, using the Hypno Hustler, which <laughs> I, I really wanted to do. And it was basically a story with a Hypno Hustler, and he has this crazy thing. You know, he's, um, he's sort of a disco guy from the 70s. And the idea being that when he would play his music with his band, um, it would put everybody into a trance and then he'd steal their wallets. Right? <laughs> uh, and so I had this thing where he's come back from jail. He's been in jail for a number of years. He comes back and he's older and he finds that people have taken a lost recording of his, of his band and they're using it at raves to get themselves all messed up. And, 
you know, and he's like, I want my royalties. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, what a great character, you know. And there's another character called the Big Wheel, who I think would have been the most absurd. He's like a guy in the middle of a big wheel, right? Yeah. And I'm like, great. I want to ride that guy. Uh, and, you know, I just... I, I just used to love just get being given freedom and trust to just do anything, you know. And obviously, it only lasts for so long. Once Marvel really kind of righted the ship financially, um, I think it, it, it changed the perspective a lot. But they had to adhere to some things that they were doing with the business, and that wasn't letting crazy people like me do whatever I wanted, you know. What led you to create typeface? Speaking of, there are no bad characters. Uh, well, you know, he was a bad character. It was horrible, <laughs> but it was funny. That was literally one of the things that Bucky and I found the most fun. We create character that character typeface, and 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 there was sort of this universal derision which we adored. You know, we were like, <laughs> you know, you know, there are two, there are two things that you shouldn't do. Like, if he's bad enough to be memorable or good enough to be memorable, that's great, right? And it was, and we knew it at the time, like typeface. Oh my god, he's going to have all these crazy things. He's going to. He's going to have letters that he throws and he's going to have all these names and crazy stuff that he does that's all to do with plays on words, right? And uh, we knew it. And so we've always had a huge love for typeface. We thought that was a triumph because he was such a crappy character that people remembered him. Um, around that period, uh, you know, after Inhumans, etc., um, you started working on The Hulk. What was it like to write him as a character? was that they had brought me in to sort of do that thing I did at that point you know they'd said to me um, you know we like what you do Paul and, and we appreciate that you've come in that they were sort of seeing me and I, I don't want to say this uh, without uh, due uh, respect but I was sort of like hey you're the guy that fixes stuff right and mm. they felt that the Hulk had gone into a bunch of different directions because they had had this tremendous 11 year or 13 year run by Peter David. So it's not like they didn't have something that was working. But for some reason, they moved Peter David off the title, even though he had done all this work, right? So now they handed it to John Byrne, and John and Peter, as I understand it, weren't, weren't very friendly with each other. And John sort of acted like he wanted to recreate the entire, entire universe uh, and, and build the Hulk from scratch. And, and, and so, you know, the, the, the month after Peter's run ended, there was almost no mention of Peter's run, and I felt that was a bit of a mistake, right? Um, so John did some different things, but he only lasted about nine or ten issues. I'm not so sure that book was for him. And then they came to me and said, look, you know, we want you to take over. Um, and I said, well, the way to take over is to get what Peter had done right and try to build that, but write my own thing, but not, not just suddenly start all over again without paying attention to, to what John had done. Um, so it was a very, very complicated and difficult, but ultimately it was an exercise in fixing things, you know? Um, so it wasn't as much fun as you would think. I finally got through fixing things in through the first kind of couple of arcs, and then I got to work with Johnny, uh, John Romita Jr., and then we had some fun. I loved those issues. Those are my favorite ones. Um, and then, you know, at the time I was overextended, too many books, and so I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do that Hulk I was in Wolverine, Hulk, Spider-Man, uh, Sentry. Um, that's four books a month, and you know I was exhausted. You know. Fair enough. Now I actually had a listener uh, submit a question when he heard that I was going to be interviewing you, just about the Hulk run, because he felt that it always seemed like you wanted to do something more with the Devil Hulk personality, and he just yep. want, he just wanted to know what were your intentions with that persona. That's a good question, actually. I like that question because I did have a lot more that I wanted to do with Devil Hulk. It was, it was saying that, that he had disassociative identity disorder. He was multiple personalities, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talked with Peter about it and one time, right? And I thought Peter had gone down that route, you know? And so what I said was that there was this thing where, where Bruce Banner had had these difficulties as a child, as, it, as he'd grown up. He had an illness. He had a typical weakness that that Stan and Jack and, and Steve Ditko and all those guys would put into those Marvel characters. His weakness was was to some extent sort of mental illness, uh, uh, an issue 
or two that he had and he couldn't control his rage and I didn't think it's just as simple as that you know we know more now rage isn't just doesn't just show up you have deep rooted reasons for containing your rage like that and so I wanted to write about it and I felt that the rage inside him we would be many things right if we could ourselves up into different personalities which by the way takes us full circle back to replica i was gonna say yeah (laughs) and so you know um we we would be many things and one of the things that we would be would be amoral if we could a small part of us that says i wonder how the world would be if um if i just chose to do whatever i wanted whenever i wanted and some people give in to that and they get arrested for murder or they do crazy things. Now, other people, I've, I've often felt, may, may uh, do things that are very drastic on a whim and suddenly regret it. Like, and I, I can't really be sure, but you know, someone who's suicidal perhaps may feel suicidal at the moment, but then if you are able to physically and metaphorically sort of talk them off the ledge, you know, if you can bring them back, uh, uh, many times people who have been suicidal um, have been able to to see, wow, that was a kind of more of a whim of mine. I'm glad I didn't do it. And other people uh, who, who are helped out in that regard uh, try again because they may suffer from something terrible like the, uh, bipolar disorder or, or PTSD or something, you know, that they've got. So we are such complex people and I thought that Devil Hulk would be a wonderful character and I also thought that he would be the really scary one you know I realized Hulk is scary I realized Joe Fix it was cool um, all of that but I felt that I felt that um, the devil Hulk would be the very very scary one living inside did you have plans um, I mean you introduced General Riker would you yeah. have perhaps killed off General Riker using Hulk to do it after he had kind of succumbed to Devil Hulk? Because it felt sometimes like maybe that was where it was going to go. Well, what was happening, yeah, so what was happening was Riker had sort of messed his life up, but he had actually done a deal with Riker, remember? He had stopped the abomination and handed him over to to, uh, to the dad, I should say. Um, so Riker was a bad guy, you know. Uh, um, he had his own reason for doing things, and they had become mortal enemies. Here comes the Devil Hulk. I think what the temptation of the devil was going to be was Bruce I'm going to give you this perfect life right and and in exchange you're going to give me the body and I'm going to go and take out everything and everybody that I hate which is basically everything I would trash the world right um to me uh that would have been so intriguing to have Bruce wake up out of it and find the world that he had trashed that would have been massive you know it would have been epic um but we never got there you know yeah. Now, I actually have a question also about your Hulk run. Um, what led you to create the Hulk dogs? <laughs> well, they ended up in the film, didn't they? They did. Yeah, along with, you know, I mean, my stuff ends up in their films all the time, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, they did. They, the Hulk dogs was just like, I thought that'd be cool, man. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> Not a lot. Now, around this time period, you also, uh, we mentioned it earlier briefly, um, you did write the origin to Wolverine, which is obviously a huge deal when it happened. How did you get picked? How did how, how are you the one? Well, it was actually my idea, uh, pretty much. Um, because I'm an outsider, you know? I'm just not an insider in comics. And uh, I had talked with Bill, it was at Joe Casada's first editorial conference where he was sort of put in charge you know and, and um, I, I had basically been been given an opportunity to come in as a, as a sort of editorial consultant so I came in and as I was there during the day it was a very strange kind of day you know it was just the editors who had had such difficulties with the bankruptcies and all that they had been through a lot you know they had, they had definitely uh, in, in some ways really suffered at the hands of all these bankruptcies and so they were a bit timid you know it wasn't their fault and they just were dealing with you know being fired every other five minutes and all these other things that were driving them crazy and so Joe was busy trying to get it together and really wanted people to be more daring and Bill Chemis who was the president at the time just asked me like you know I know that you're upset Paul I can see that you're not enjoying the day what's the problem and so I told him, you know, Bill, I, I feel like 
I'm supposed to be in the house of ideas, right? And there's not a single idea that's worth going, you know, everyone's terrified of coming up with an idea. And Bill understood it because he knew that people had been fired for having ideas previously. You know, like he, he got it and he's like, yeah, we're, we're trying to get these people off of this, you know, like they need to, they need to, to know that we support them. And he said, you know, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, look, Bill, you know, I, I remember exactly how the conversation went, actually. I said, my experience, uh, even at DC, right, was that someone like Grant Morrison would write, like, Arkham Asylum, and it would be seen as being the seminal work of comics or something. And then Grant would go and pitch Arkham Asylum 2, or whatever it might be, and uh, they'd say, uh, no, sorry, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're trying to, trying to do. And, you know, I'm like, how do you do that? How do you not do good ideas? It seems like you should, right? And Bill said, well, what, what kind of things do you have in mind? And I said, I don't know, like, you've got Wolverine. And he said, oh, the origin of Wolverine. Like, where did he... So we both kind of thought of it at the time to some extent. You know, I think it doesn't really matter who said it first. We were immediately like, oh, snap, that's what we should do. You should do, like, the origin of Wolverine. And Bill knew that it wouldn't go down well, so we took Joe to one side and we said, Joe, why don't you do things like the Wolverine origin? And Joe resisted for about 20 seconds, you know, his condition to say, we can't do that. And then he said, and Bill said, why can't you? And Joe said, there's absolutely no reason why I can't. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Why are we doing this? You're absolutely right. So Joe pitched it to the editors, and there was this outrage. You know, like, you can't do the origin of Wolverine. You'll destroy the character. And I don't think that was true. And then, obviously, the rest is history. He did the origin of Wolverine, and it came out great. Now, when I have a lot of questions about origin, but uh, was there ever any discussion about not making him actually Canadian? No. He was always Canadian. Now, that was actually something that I insisted on because that's who he was. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm a Brit, right? It's just not like I'm... It's just that was who he was. Why, why, why would you... I mean, if you change that, then you wouldn't make him who he was. Well, I remember at the time there was people speculating, and I'm like, I'm a Canadian myself. And I'm like, no, no, he has to stay Canadian. No, he's Canadian. Look, this is how it worked out. It was actually quite funny. I went to a convention in Canada after issue three came out and everybody just gave me the stink eye right? what are you doing you made him a yank why'd you do that right they were upset and i couldn't tell them at the time well first of all you silly canadians you need to look at your own geography there are plenty of cornfields and wheat fields in uh in alberta right? <laughs> so you know stop yelling at me but i couldn't tell them Look, so what I would do is I would say, I would give a big wink and I'd say, hey, keep reading. Okay, that's all I could do. And even then, I probably wasn't supposed to do that. So then, as issue six was coming out, as it was coming out, uh, I did another convention in Canada and I was like, I was like Canada's favorite son. <laughs> people, <laughs> people brought muffins for me and beer and all this stuff in this convention and they were hugging me and saying thank you man and all that and I'm like I, I told you to keep reading I'm sorry that I couldn't tell you that he definitely was it was just one of those things you know how did you decide to make him from Alberta which is an odd question but as a Canadian I'm interested uh, wheat fields where he grew up on a farm that kind of like just the geography okay yeah. so it just kind of matched the story you wanted to tell yep now what um was there any what was the editorial oversight like on creating the origin like was there a lot of kind of back and forth on the scripts and kind of working on them or did they kind of just take your you know your, your pitch and go with it uh, when the scripts were going it wasn't pitch obviously they were writing scripts right you know it was, True. It was, um, yeah there's a kind of a funny story about that I mean that's just one of those things you know um, I think if you actually ever go back and read the origin of Wolverine and you now know this thing that I'm about to tell you, you'll read it differently. Uh, the first three issues were basically exclusively me. They left me alone. I wrote the book. And um, they trusted me, right? And we had done well within humans, centered, become a mainstay character of the universe. Um, Spider-Man was doing pretty well. The Hulk had done, you know, the, like I had done things that were working out for them. And so I think they trusted me to the point where I could, I could. And then there's actually something, I've, I've kept it on my bio, uh, there's a quote from Joe Casada that says, I would trust Paul Jenkins with any Marvel character. Let me repeat that, any Marvel character, right? Um, and, and I wrote the first three issues, paced the way that I wanted to, 
And I think then Marvel saw the response to it and the numbers. And that's when I started getting editorial comments and ideas and crazy stuff flying around. And so you can almost see that the first three issues is me and the last three issues are a bit of a mix, you know? Interesting. What, uh, is there anything in particular that you feel isn't as you or that we could see that is a little bit more of an editorial handprint? scene at the end I mean just lost in translation you know like if you look at the well okay look at the last issue issue six and count how many panels there are on a page sometimes because there's like seven and eight panels sometimes because they had they need to get all their ideas in there oh really yeah so I mean it just I didn't I thought it sort of got a little out of hand at the end you know what was it like having done that what was it like doing Wolverine the end well, it's fine because I want. I, I I probably messed that one up a little bit. You know, I've always wondered about that. Um, I thought they were letting me do something that really meant something. You know, and I also didn't really see it the way that the other end writers seemed to see it. Right? I think other writers who did the end um, saw their end stories. You know, like Silver Surfer, the end or whatever, as the death of. Right? But I didn't. I didn't want it to be the death of Wolverine I wanted to be the final say on Wolverine yeah uh, my final say perhaps um, so what I did was a story that suggested that the brother who had gone missing the one that had torn up the mother you know um, if you look at Wolverine Origin she's got scars all over her and it's clear that there's been a firstborn and that, that, that came before uh, James Howlett you know it's clear I mean she's got scars all over her right so she probably has given birth once before to a mutant that's that's torn her up, and I created that character, and he had been messing with Wolverine all of his life, and um, uh, that, that it's a shame. And I mean, it's you know, I thought that that would be a great character that we could come back to. Then you know, not only that, but I also wanted to to say something about. I've always got themes, right? So I'm probably too clever for my own good at sometimes. And uh, I wanted to write about how it must feel to be a victim of, of assault, like Wolverine was, because you know Weapon X did not ask permission to open up his body and give him adamantium claws, right? So he was raped essentially. And um, you know, I thought it was something I wanted to write about, like that sometimes rape victims don't have the benefit of finding out who their rapist was and prosecuting them, and that, and so. I found that, you know, perhaps uh, in that regard, Wolverine would have to forgive them or just accept that they were gone without ever being able to punch him in the face, you know? Um, so it's all kind of interesting stuff, but I'm not so sure that was the end of Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was it like working with Paolo Rivera on the Mythos books? Oh, man, yeah. Well, first of all, he's brilliant, and it's impossible to say how how amazing Paolo is because he fully painted every page, right? He fully painted them, but he, you know, the, they move, they're dynamic, they're beautiful, right? Oh, they're gorgeous, uh, gorgeous work, like absolutely yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, they're so gorgeous, right? And um, they were, they were the most difficult, I, I kid you not, right? They were the most difficult comic books I've ever written. One of the most difficult things I've ever written. Marvel would say to me, we need you to be, to, uh, to, 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 to bring in the elements of the movies and the popular culture versions. We need you to adhere to the origins as best you can, but also give them a unique voice. And honestly, I feel like we did. So we checked off all three of those boxes. We, we, with the exception of the Ghost Rider one, um, we were very reverent to the, to the origins. The reason not with the Ghost Rider one, have you ever read Ghost Rider number one? Uh, I can't say I have. It's, it's somewhat incomprehensible. I couldn't understand what the hell it was. Uh, <laughs> but we, we did. We kept the origins, but we used the popular culture versions like Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. But I feel like we put in some unique things into every single one of them. And I was so proud of that. Like, people don't realize about Mythos. Um, if you take the Fantastic Four book that we did, we created a unique concept that had never been done in terms of the Fantastic Four, right? Um, the, con the concept was 
that when they're in front of a congressional inquiry, the congressmen and women say to them, well, what were, you th- what, what, what were these going through your head as, the, as you were getting hit with this space thing, right? And Reed Richards said, well, I was reaching out for my wife. And Sue Storm says, I was trying to hide. Uh, and Ben Grimm says, I, I was angry. I was, trying to, I was trying to rip off the door to get to Johnny. And Johnny, who gets caught outside, says, well, I was just really hot. So everything that was going through their minds is what created their powers. Hmm. So fantastic, you know, Mr. Fantastic was reaching for his wife, and that's why he got the ability to stretch. She was trying to hide, and that's why she became Invisible Girl. And that had never been thought of before, and I loved it, and I was so proud of us. Um, there were some in, in other ones. You know, there was there was something just like that uh, in, in, say, uh, Captain America. You know, that, that of all of them is my favorite. Captain America. That was my next question. Which one was your favorite? <laughs> Captain America, because because you the story is yeah, I get it. I get that he's tiny, ninety pound weakling, Steve Rogers. But aren't those the heroes? I mean, you know, I live next door until a couple of years ago to a guy who was on the USS St. Louis, and his best friend was killed on the Arizona on the day of Pearl Harbor. These are a generation of young men that went thousands of miles away from their homes to fight for the freedoms of other people on foreign soil. These are heroes, because the real heroes are not the ones like Wolverine that ran into battle chomping a stogie. The heroes are the people that run into battle terrified that they'll never see their wife and children again. And, and now, you know, women are in battle now, and so it's their spouses and children. You know, I mean, these are the heroes of people who, who are doing a duty and, and really dealing with hardship, you know, and... Um, so I thought that he was such a hero for his, his, his service, for volunteering for this service and wanting to do it and being, you know, he would have been Captain America even if he had stayed uh, Steve Rogers. Just like Peter Parker, had he not become a Spider-Man, he would have been a teacher, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so he would have been a civil servant of some kind. So what was great to me about, um, there were two things that I loved so much about my Spider-Man, I mean, about um, Captain America. One was that we explained, because I'm a big history student, and I like to do research. So if you take when Steve Rogers would be born, you have to imagine that his father would have lived through the Great Depression. And as it turns out, his father died during the Great Depression, and his mother had to raise him during the Great Depression. And she dies, but he turns out to be a comic artist. And so he joins, and there's this kid. If you take the origin, there's a kid that literally throws... um, um, uh, What's the kid do? The kid um, uh, uh, uses a slingshot and fires it at Steve Rogers, right? And um, that is something that that I found was quite natural about about the, the growth. But what we did was Steve Rogers goes to war with that kid and he joins up with him and that kid is called Doug Huggins. And he joins up with Doug Huggins and then Doug Huggins go to war, Doug Huggins kind of bored, he goes through basic training with him and then he ends up becoming Captain America. But at some point they go into Sicily in, in his regiment, you know, the 17th Infantry, and the Blue Spaders, right? And they go into war, and then they, they, they're the first invasion force in Sicily or whatever in, 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 uh, in Italy. And then he ends up pitting a medal to Doug Huggins. And then he talks more about, like, the young men that he left behind. The, the boys that were eternally 22 buried in some corner of some foreign field, you know? Mm-hmm. And to me, like, that that thing just... I know it resonated with the people that read it. You know, they loved it and they said, like, this is, that's what he's all about. Captain America is about the, the memory of the heroism of his, of his friends. And in the end of the story, there are two things you find out, that he joined the army so that he could understand and be close to the father that he never knew. He joined his father's infantry. That's why he wanted to join. And to me, I was so proud of that decision that, that we kind of showed why he would be that guy. Well, and the, sorry, the, the closing scene of that, of that story as well with him and I guess it was still Doug, right? And yep. they're, they're the only two left in that room is, is haunting. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it, that, was, that was one of my favorite bits.
this definitely was that he ends up the same boy that fired the slingshot at him is now in his 90s and he's eating with him and they're at the regimental yearly dinner that he goes back to every year and he says you know god tell you i miss those boys you know it's it's beautiful i was very proud of it i thought it was a beautiful story and that's what prompted tom to say i need you to write captain america for a bit you know (laughs) (laughs) and i love that of of all the stuff i ever did for marvel my favorite was captain america theater of war that's my favorite books why is that your favorite well because i wrote four books and and each one of the four was something that i felt was something that i can read it i wrote it I can read my own work in that regard and get emotional about what it means. You know, I have a healthy respect for the military. Uh, in my family, you know, uh, too many of my great grandfathers. You only end up having four great grandfathers, right? Well, too many of mine ended up dying in the first war, and um, uh, one of them, Bill Eldridge, um, this time next year will be the anniversary of his death, and he was buried. He he, he was shot, and he bled out in a clearinghouse because there was no one to staunch his wounds, right? Um, I feel such a kinship and an understanding of, of military history and, and of American history. You know, I've lived here for 28 years now. I love this country. I love living here. Um, I understand this country, and so, but I have a, a unique perspective being British, right? And so my favorite of all of them, I mean, I know that this was going to be a good book, because Tom, Tom Breville asked me to write them. I called him up and I said, um, hey, Tom, I want to pitch you my first story. And, and I've said this a couple of times in interviews, but I, it doesn't get old. I pitched him the first story and Tom kind of hiccuped or laughed. And I said, you know, Tom, I, I know what you did there. You were going to cry, weren't you? <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, you got me. Man, you got me. I mean, I've been in this business for too long and, and yet... You got me right there. I, I just got my heart. And so uh, the first story was about an ordinary soldier that he would have been if he had not been given uh, uh, the super serum. And it has probably my favorite scene in any book that I've ever written. Um, and it's it's that he, Captain America, brings the guy's body back to the United States after 70 years lying in French soil. And he delivers a eulogy to him, to this tiny, weedy, broken little soldier that, that died in an act of heroism. And he had promised the soldier when he was alive that he would introduce him to a girl. And the soldier, as he dies, sort of says to him, you know, Cap, I, I realize this is all crap. There's, there's no girl, there's no swimming hole, there's no nothing. You know, I'm gonna die here and I want you to leave me now, you gotta go away. And so off goes Captain America and he feels terrible. He comes back and he makes good on his promise and he brings the guy's dog tags and he throws them in the water underneath the Statue of Liberty. And he says, she's the most beautiful girl in all the world. So to me, that is so Captain America. And then even from that, I felt that we got stories that, that the last issue was literally a story about the entirety of the American military experience where Captain America appears as a manifestation of every piece of, of patriotism and American military endeavor. And he's like a ghost of his own country. Now, are, are the, the, those books are all collected, I believe, correct? Yeah, there's a collection. I'm certainly, I love Hello? So those, those are the ones that I am by far the most proud. Yeah. Now, uh, before we let you go, I have to ask because yes, one, one of my fa- one of my fa- favorite books, uh, especially when it was coming out, was The Century. Um, and I, I would mm-hmm. be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, how did this come about? Uh, how did the I, I remember the big uh, advertising promotion that by now is long forgotten um, about you know him being a, a forgotten character and what this was supposed to be like. What was it like, kind of being part of that? whole experience because not only were you introducing the new character but you were doing it under the you know kind of the the mistaken pretenses that it wasn't an actual new character right i mean the thing that people now know is that i had actually pitched the century for about six or seven years to marvel and dc and they had rejected it every time uh but i pitched it to 
them when they, they basically, you know, when, when I won an ISA for Inhumans, they said, you know, you, you're welcome to do whatever you want now. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, funnily enough, I really don't want to do Spider-Man. I don't want to do the Hulk. What I'd really like to do is Sentry. And they just kind of yelled and said, oh, God, not that thing. <laughs> All right, fine, we'll give it a shot. But then Joe, Joe, I think it was, who had the idea, well, you know, why don't we say that it actually, we've got to, it's hard to get a new project off the ground. Why don't we go with the story that you've created that he's a forgotten hero that that nobody remembers and say that we were all conditioned to forget him? And I'm like, okay, great. Now, the thing was, uh, my wife uh, loves this. I suck. Uh, everyone tells a little bit of lies every so often. You know, oh, where have you been? Well, nowhere, right? But I suck. I'm awful. I just, you, she can see through me in a second. So... Uh, I spent a whole year trying to pretend that I'd really found these things in Stan Lee's closet. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Joe was really good at it. He could just sit there and like pass it off. And then they'd, I'd sit at conventions with him and I'd say, yeah, yeah, that's right. What Joe said, you know, and I felt like I was giving the game away. But we, we fooled a lot of people, you know. A lot of people got interested in the century and then we did it. And then they became, you know, we had the juice of the Inhumans that we had done. We had this new series. It was great. It was a really good time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you definitely got me. I mean, I was 16 years old reading Wizard Magazine, and I'm like, oh, this, this is, this sounds like something. And then yeah. later to find out, oh, no, no, that's that's not at all what you thought it was. <laughs> yeah, well, the two things that are funny about that, one is that Wizard actually published a picture of uh, some old guy that was the original cartoonist. Um, <laughs> I remember that, was, that. That was a picture of Joe's grandfather, or Joe's wife's grandfather, maybe, I can't remember, Nancy. Um so I can't remember which one of those it was. Uh, and then the other thing about it that was really funny was that the original artist was a guy named Artie Rosen. Um, and that just sounds right, doesn't it? Like Artie Rosen, that sounds like he could have worked in the Golden Age. Well, he, he was actually an amalgam that I created out of two of the original letters. It was Artie Simak and Sam Rosen, oh, okay. who, who were letterers. And so I just, I just put their names together and came up with Artie Rosen. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, Jay Lee was the illustrator was that kind of a, a given to you of course it was going to be Jay Lee or uh, was it again building off of the success of Inhumans that why wouldn't you guys work together yeah it's the success of Inhumans they asked us what do you want to do and I persuaded Jay to do this crazy ass character what was it about the century that like you've been trying to do it for six years what was it about that character that really spoke to you that you really were wanting to do it and kept pitching it I knew, I knew it was a good idea. That's all. Just stubborn, I guess. <laughs> look, look. The thing is, Marvel, like, like Superman, is difficult, right? Because uh, you sort of say, "Why? What's the point? What are you going to get out of that?" Right? And uh, you know, I've, I've spoken about it before. Eddie Baganza and I had a conversation one time where Eddie sort of said to me, "You know, how do you feel about writing Superman?" I said, "I've got to be honest, man. Like, I, I think uh, there's a trouble there because I'm not going to write Superman the way that I think you need it to be." Um, and the way I would attack him would be to to go after him mentally because I can't think of any other way to go after him, right? Um, and, and Eddie understood, you know. But I, I sort of said, look, you know, uh, like so. So what I would do is I would get a bullet. I, I'd have Lex Luthor grab his parents and and blow their brains out right in front, of him, <laughs> you know, uh, and say, are you faster than speed and bullet? And just totally take him down mentally, right? Um, and Eddie said, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, well, I, you know, I won't worry about it. i got to think all the century. I'm already doing it. And so the idea that he was a guy who was perfect, Superman, you know, I am the century, the golden guardian of good. And he's got these great alliterations, you know, he's Robert Reynolds and, and, he, and he, he's the golden guardian of good. And he has all these plays on century, you know, like here's a watchdog and a watchtower. And now all of a sudden it's all that time and crazy stuff like that. Right. So he, he seemed like he could be a golden age superhero. And yet he fought this awful creature called the void, uh, this creature of darkness. And yet this, the century never casts a shadow. And in the end you find out that he is the void, that he is both the century and the void. And that he is mentally ill. He's a disorganized type schizophrenic with agoraphobia and borderline personality disorder. And I, and I had gone through a long, I, I had gone through a lot of um, study to understand his, his profile. And I sent that psychological profile to Marvel and said, anyone that writes this character in the future needs to follow the psychological profile. Uh, I, apparently, I was an island of one because no one really gave a crap. But you know. <laughs> well, obviously, eventually Bendis cared, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Brian ended up writing him, and uh, 
uh, you know, because he liked the character and he ended up becoming a member of the Avengers. And it was good. It was, it was, you know, this guy is just too dangerous for his own good. And then the only thing about the Sentry is that, you know, I, I always expected it to be a trilogy, which won't be done now, I'm sure. Um, the first series was about him coming to aware. The second series was him questioning everything about himself because I, I was so fond of the second series that I did in Century with John Romita. That was that was one of my favorites too, right? Um, and the third one I would do would would have been uh, that he realizes he's becoming a god and questions the nature of reality and existence itself. You know, we don't think that'll ever happen. No, I don't think so. Now, uh, before we let you go, uh, obviously, Replica now has a trade paperback. People can go out and buy that. It just came out this month. Uh, what up other upcoming work can you uh, tease us about? Well, you know, we've got a lot of attention paid to Alters right now. Um, Alters is um, a story that I it's very much like the Century. I, I had spent a long time pitching the Century perhaps even longer pitching the concept of alters, which is about people who are given super abilities, but they have a, 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 a disadvantage in their life of some kind. And they get this tremendous advantage of this mutant power that can, you know, change, use particle physics and all kinds of crazy stuff that they can use in their powers. But each of the main characters has, has a disadvantage of some kind. Um, you know, the main character to start is transgender and she's having to live, her life as a, as a middle brother of three in a Cleveland family that's not, you know, dealing with, with the oldest brother who has cerebral palsy, so she's struggling. She has to be who she really is, but she's struggling to kind of come out on that. Um, but there are other characters that will do, person who has PTSD, somebody who um, deals with, with uh, ends up getting a, their neck broken and becomes quadriplegic. Um, so we're going to go through all kinds of disadvantage. And just to, just to be clear, you know, it's disadvantage. We're, talking, we're certainly not equating transgender with disability. That's that's obviously not true. What we are saying that we're finding people who are maybe marginalised by society. You know, the gay community, uh, even someone who's misunderstood. You know, someone who's perhaps not very attractive or or or, uh, or deals with vertigo or something. You know, like all of these people are dealing with the typical disadvantages or untypical disadvantages, and they get this incredible superpower. So alters is coming out. Um, the end of August, and it's we've already been in the New York Times, CBS. I mean, everybody's all into alters right now. And I have a novel coming out um, in just the beginning of September called Curiosity, uh, which I'm really, really excited about because that that book is a sort of a labor of love. So I know, I know, so far the people who've read it uh, in the early reviews are loving it. So excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for taking the time to talk about your career in comics as well as your upcoming projects. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for having me.